0: Hi, everybody. You may be used to hearing Barbara Bray at the top of this podcast. Well, I am her sound editor and also her son, Andrew Bray. And the reason you're hearing my voice is because I'm speaking with Barbara Bray right now, who from now on I'm going to call Mom because she has <laughs> an exciting announcement she wanted to share with everybody. So, Mom, what are you excited about?
1: Well, my, I have a new book. And it's and it's called Define Your Why. I've been talking about it, and it's launching soon.
0: Now, when is it launching? Well, February 17th. So right now, if people have been excited listening to this podcast and hearing you tell everybody else's story, if they want to not only learn more about you, but get some... Practical advice and some of your guidance and expertise, they could order it on pre order right now. What with, what's the website that they could find pre order for Define Your Why on?
1: <laughs> well, it's on Amazon right now, and I made a bit.ly. It's uh, bit.ly slash, and it's Define Your Why Book, all lowercase.
0: So if you're on Amazon, you're hunting for the book, you can search for Define Your Why, or, of course, your favorite podcast host, you can search for her name, Barbara Bray. Uh, I'm so excited I get to have a little <laughs> bit of the opposite of what you get in these other podcasts and interview you. Okay, so really quickly, just a little hint for the book. So so why isn't it Define Your How or Define Your What?
1: Well, <laughs> because if you uh, start with the what which is what I've done for so long. It's just, it it you might be doing something that you're not, it's not your purpose. And that's what I found out from some of the people I talked to is they were doing the what and the how for so long that they weren't always happy. And that happened to me. I was with, I I don't want to give away everything in my book, but (laughs) I lived a life where I was crying behind my mask and not living the life I wanted to. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't want other people to go through that. So that's kind of how that started happening. It was asking why. And I started doing some research on that.
0: I'm really glad that everybody else gets to learn a little bit more about you when they read your book.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Andrew.
0: I'm really excited. (laughs) Me too. Well, uh, stay tuned and listen to Barbara Bray's conversation with Andalee Espinoza.
1: Welcome to the Rethinking Learning Podcast. I'm Barbara Bray, and this is where I have conversations on learning with inspirational educators, thought leaders, and difference makers. I have someone here I have known for some time in the personalized learning venue, but I found out more about Andalee Espinoza. I'm saying that right? Yes. Yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> I am so glad you're here because it's kind of fun to actually have a conversation with you. We've we've been extending emails and talking in other ways, but this way we get to really get to know each other and, mm-hmm. and uh, learn more about you. And thank you so much for being here. Yeah, I'm excited. Thank well, you. Oh, well, I get to show you off a little bit. So I'm going <laughs> to just, uh, let me just say a little bit for my audience, a little bit about your background and uh, who you are anyway. hmm Andalee is a special education teacher, and she's been supporting students in high school regular education classes for twenty years. She has a passion for personalized learning, and I can tell you, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the whole idea is teaching students to use their voice, and that's so good. I'm because that what we're going to do is we're going to talk a little bit more about that, Andalee, because I mm-hmm. really feel that um, that scares a lot of teachers. They're not really sure how to do that, so it'll be good for you to share it. And uh, Annalie currently supports physics and biology classrooms at Brookfield Central High School in Brookfield, Wisconsin. I know someone else at your school.
2: <laughs> I know you do.
1: <laughs> I, uh, I refer to him as my partner in crime sometimes. <laughs> oh, I love Michael um, Muhammad, and he's mm-hmm. just amazing. And that's how I met you. <laughs> yep. That's how yep, I met he's you. Our, he's our common link. Oh, he's wonderful, and uh, but I he says you have to talk to Anjali, and I go okay. <laughs> and then when I did, I said I definitely need to learn more about you. So welcome. So I'm so glad you're here. Oh, thank you. So I I just told a little bit what you're doing now, but mm-hmm. can you just tell about your background and where you grew up and a little bit about you? Yeah.
2: So I have lived in Wisconsin my entire life. Uh, it is you know, we have a lot of extremes here. We can have a hundred degree weather in the summer and we can have 50 degree weather or 50 below weather in uh, the, the winter. So <laughs> it's, we have all sorts of extremes here as I look out and we've got like four inches of snow right now. Um, oh, wow. it, yeah. And it's beginning of November. It's going to be a long winter, um, <laughs> but I, I do love it here in Wisconsin. My family is, is mostly all here in Wisconsin. Uh, I live and have always lived just outside of Milwaukee. It's, um, I grew up in Menominee Falls, which is a suburb of Milwaukee, and now I live in Wauwatosa, which is just a few miles down the road. And then I teach in Brookfield, so it's all—it's all pretty closely related, or you know, close proximity. I—I uh, I think being a special ed teacher is what I always wanted to be. It was where I—I hmm. I, I started. I kind of got involved in this this field as a, at a pretty young age. Uh, there was a family down the street from me. And they had twins and, um, one of them had cerebral palsy. And oh. I, you know, it was right about that age where I was, they were born and I was 11. So I, I was their babysitter. You know, I, as all throughout middle school and high school, I was just, you know, close proximity and I, I really got into, um, understanding what a family who has a child with significant needs, you know, goes through. And I, I lived it. And I think that some of those like fears or apprehensions that people have, I just, that was my, like, that was my babysitting gig. <laughs> wow! I, I uh, was able to, you know, I was their go-to person. So it was a steady income for me. And, um, and then when, and that the mother had started some support groups for families with students with uh, special needs in the community. So once, and, and I know you're a mom, and I'm sure that when you found a babysitter, you were kind of protective of that person mm-hmm. when your children were young. But at the same time, you wanted to let people know how great they were. And the word got out. So I had a little monopoly on families in Menominee Falls who, who had, you know, children with special needs that was, you know, a babysitter that they could count on.
1: Wow. So. Can I stop you for a moment? So you <laughs> yeah. said 11. You well, 11. yeah,
2: it was like a, a little mother's helper for a few years. Okay. And then when the, the girls a... were, yeah, when the girls were um, like two, or three, so then I was about 13. That's when I, I
1: took over. Oh. So, you're, so how many jobs did you, I mean, you went to school. But you had, oh, yeah. you also, but, how did you do this? Did you, you know? Oh,
2: well, on the weekends and during the summer and at nights and that sort of thing. That was. Oh, wow. Was,
1: and you, so you, you had a little business on the side. I did. <laughs> <laughs> how many, how many families did you end up eventually? Um,
2: I had probably around five or six families that I would, I would work
1: around or work with. So it was, it was good. Wow. Well, that's, that's your love of that. But what was it like then? As a student yourself, I mean, you know, when you're uh, in school, it's different. Sure, sure. Well, when I think
2: myself as a student, I was I was pretty good at playing school. I knew what teachers wanted. I I played by the rules. I, I played it safe. I was a good student. Um, but I... Everything that I was involved with outside of school, I was far more passionate about. I was passionate about learning more about the kids that I was spending time with on the weekends and at night, and uh, I was real active in 4-H, and I think everybody oh, thinks cool. of 4-H as like cows and cooking, and I was in an urban area, so it wasn't that at all. It was a lot of service work, and we did do the projects, um, but the part about 4-H that I loved so much, or that really spoke to me, was the service aspect, and at, at a pretty young age, I was planning, um, public service or, or you know, more service related things for all the kids in the club to do and really looking at how can we do community service and the, and what does that look like for a teenager or a, an elementary student? Um, and then I was involved in student council and that's where my passion was too. And, you know, just really carrying on that service component because that was so important to me. So those were the things that I was really passionate about. So I think going into education was just a natural progression for me to combine the things that I had really enjoyed and really gotten into, uh, just learning more about my, myself and, and doing research on my own and learning about different types of um, disabilities and challenges that these students faced in school. You know, I was learning all about that as as a high school student, but then also wanting, you know, having that like inner need to give back to your community.
1: Did you do 4-H in high school? I did. I was in 4-H for eleven years. (laughs) Eleven years. I mean, uh, my neighbor next door runs 4-H for our area, and so I've done some work with them. And um, I just think it's a wonderful program Mm -hmm. to me. So I didn't. Understand about the service aspect the here they're not oh <laughs> they they're raising chickens and they're doing photography and they do have yeah. some other things, but the service aspect was that something that they started in your no area? I mean
2: that's always been part of it, but I think you know I, I, you can, you can get whatever you want out of an organization, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever you're looking for. So there were students or there were members who, you know, they were there for the projects. And, um, and like I said, we're more urban, so we didn't have the cows and the chickens and the horses and all that, but we had the photography and cake decorating and, and sewing, woodworking, that sort of thing. But uh, we did have community service aspect to it. You know, that
1: was a component. That's really great. Well, Mm -hmm. I live in the city. It's amazing what they do here yeah. it's in 4-H. <laughs> I, I live in Oakland, California, so you wouldn't think that it would have some of those things. But um, but I do love that you had that because it sounds like right from a very young age, you had a voice in your learning. You mm-hmm. made it. Even yeah, if the well, system didn't do it, you did yeah. it.
2: <laughs> yeah, and those were things that I did outside of school. And, and you know, one of the great things about 4-H is that you you get to tailor what you want to get out of it you get to pick which projects you want to d- dive deeper into and what skills you want to gain. So, so it's I kind of a, like, I show you my
1: cup. Oh, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I, did a, I did some work with them, so I got that cup.
2: So just so the listeners know, Barbara just held a pick up uh, coffee cup with a 4-H emblem on it.
1: Good job. <laughs> so you just, was, I didn't even know you were going to talk about it. So that's really funny. Well, um,
2: actually, I just came up with it. That wasn't really planned.
1: <laughs> so. (laughs) I love well. that's why I love the conversations. You never know what's going to come out Mm -hmm. of it. And um, to me, your your love of just finding whatever is your passion kind of drove you a certain way. Did your Mm -hmm. did your family um, support? I mean, it it seems like they were really open to letting you go in the direction you wanted to go. Mm -hmm. Well,
2: actually, both my parents were teachers. Ah, okay. And so uh, my dad was a science teacher and my mom was an English teacher and they, uh, they, they spend a little time in the middle school, but they both finished their careers at the high school. And I think my dad spent most of his career at the high school. So it, I knew at a young age what it was. The, the time outside of school that was going to be spent. You know, I'd see my mom sitting at the kitchen table before any of us got up in the morning grading English papers and my dad spending weekends doing lab reports. And uh, they were both active in other aspects in their, their school, whether it was a theater program or a yearbook, mm-hmm. or my dad was uh, heavily involved in the teacher's union. So just the sense of being a teacher, you, you're you doing a lot of service for others.
1: Yes, Yes, so that's really nice that you have that option. I mean that your parents mm -hmm. shared that. I mean it is teachers work harder than anyone I know, (laughs) and you actually saw it. So you know you mentioned you have a dog. Your family is that your family? (laughs) Uh, Well, I have uh, I have two sons. They're twins. They are freshmen in
2: high school. So it's that they're. It, it's kind of, uh, it's fun now that my two worlds have collided, but, you know, I have two children who are the same age as the ones that I teach at school. So I'm, wow. I'm around high schoolers all day now. And, uh, so, and then, and then my husband is here too. <laughs>
0: so Aww, it's the two boys, nice.
1: our dog
2: and my husband.
1: A lot of, a lot of men in your life. Yes? Yep. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, um, there's, are your sons at the same school?
2: Uh, no, I live in a different community. I live in Wawatosa, which uh-huh. is right next door to Brookfield. So Oh, but
1: that it's kind of it's difficult sometimes to be in the same school when you're teaching. It I is. That, and yeah. it's
2: it's nice that they have their they have their own world. You know, it's not them um seeing me in the hallway and I don't I'm never tempted to go like talk to one of their teachers yeah. and, you, you know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I did that. I'm terrible. I'd actually worked in the schools that my kids were in. And I was like, an, I'm just curious why you did such a, I <laughs> was probably that terrible parent, you know, well, teachers seem to know more than, you know, others. So It's, it's good. I think that the, it,
2: it gives them their own, it's their world. It's not a world that we share. And we do plenty mm-hmm. together. It's fine.
1: <laughs> oh, they sound wonderful. So, well, um, so well, how you already knew you wanted to be a special ed teacher.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Is that what you did? You just went right into college with that in mind?
2: Well, I did start off as a special ed teacher. Then I spent a little time thinking, well, maybe I want to be a science teacher. Mm-hmm. I had a pretty uh, inspiring uh, biology professor my freshman year and really considered switching majors and doing regular ed and and doing the science you know life science and maybe earth science and then I'm you know and then I just kind of went back to my roots I'm like you know what this isn't this isn't exactly what I want to do I want to be involved in curriculum but I don't this isn't what I'm exactly interested in. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, remained a, a special ed major and declared a biology minor. And I thought ah. that will be helpful because I want to work in a regular classroom alongside a teacher and support teachers and support students and work on curriculum and, and figuring out ways that all students can be successful. So having that background knowledge of regular ed curriculum definitely has been helpful you know, in the science area. So that I I do support in a biology class, or I work with a team of biology teachers, actually. Um, We're on a block schedule at Brookfield Central High School. So first semester, I spend with Mike in Mike Mohammed in uh, physics. And then second semester, I spend um, the semester working with a a team of biology teachers.
1: Oh, that that's kind of neat. So you're, Mm -hmm. you're only with um, that one group, you're not going all around the school and other subjects. Yeah. It's mostly science. It, it, oh, I it didn't, is. I, yeah. Um, oh, so wow. our, uh,
2: that was kind of one of my missions over the years is to really make sure that we're protecting our special ed teachers. And there's only so many directions we can be pulled in during the day. Yeah. And between case managing and, um, really needing to be available to students at the you know, and at any moment during the day, don't put us in three different classrooms. <laughs> let's let's spend time really getting good at, at one area where we can really make a difference, and develop those relationships with our our fellow coworkers in one content area, rather than being pulled in so many different directions.
1: So, uh, it, well, how long have you been working with Mike and the other teachers in this? You said eleven years, or well, yeah.
2: Mike and I have been together for 11 years there was a gap in there for a period of time because I, I was with him in a, a freshman science class that is mm-hmm. no longer taught at our school and they did a curriculum realignment and I went and then worked with um, some other bio or I went to biology for a few years and then I came back in in the role of physics because um, at that point Mike and I got together and we're like you know what this let's Let's bring back the Mike and Andy show. I do go by Andy. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> to let's go by closest, Andy then.
1: <laughs> to I those should people have asked me. <laughs> okay.
2: So that's, you know, we said this is, let, it's time to get back together. So yeah. we, we've been doing physics now for six years. And um, then, you know, I've done biology off and on, but now I've been in biology for a, a couple of years. The team has changed just with different staff, but...
1: Mm-hmm. Um, you know I like it oh yeah I, <laughs> I mean, feel comfortable in biology
2: because I, I do have that academic background
1: oh that's yeah especially mm-hmm. since that was your minor I mean that's really great mm-hmm. um so you know I know Mike and I've known him for <laughs> about a, not as long as you have but I do know that he was really interested in personalized learning mm-hmm. and when he mentioned you it's probably changed a lot since you started right
2: oh yeah Well, and I think everybody has just grown and kind of developed their own vision of what it looks like, and um, yeah, it's changed.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, explain why it changed. Why don't you walk me through some of the things that happened, and what are you noticing with your students?
2: Well, I guess in our in our district, it was rolled out slowly. You know, there were there were a few pockets of teachers, and Mike was in that first wave of teachers that went through some specialized professional development. And he and I were not teaching at that time. So I came in, I think in year two or three for him in personalized learning. Mm-hmm. So for many, for, for a while, special ed teachers weren't part of those cohorts of the teachers who are getting trained in it, or I guess in-service or, you know, attending professional development, but we've So a lot of learning that I did in the beginning was just like catch up with Mike. (laughs) But, you know, then also, you know, reading books and listening to podcasts and and going to different conferences. And Mike and I were able to do a lot of our professional development together Mm -hmm. once we got back in or once I went back to his classroom in, in the role of physics. So a lot of like how we have grown, we've grown together. And like our vision has, it truly is our vision. It's not, it's, it's not me just coming in. You know, we've been able to do a lot of it together. So that's, that's been huge. Um, I think for our success as a a pair um, and you can see it in our classroom.
1: Do you find that what you've learned with Mike, then you can take over to when you're working with the biology teachers. I mean, all of that information and the, and, and the process. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I I do try to do, or I I do try to take things into other classrooms. um, Mm -hmm. But I always tell teachers, especially when, you know, I'm, I'm at a conference and I'm presenting out what we're doing. What Mike and I have built is not something that happened overnight. Mm -hmm. It was not one year's worth of work. This is, this is like 11 years in the making. So it's, I, when we talk about personalized learning I often tell teachers like you pick one thing one thing that you're going to work on or, or uh, one way that you're going to change your way of thinking for this unit and then next unit maybe you're going to add a second thing and then the next time maybe you're going to go back and revise and you're going to constantly make things better and you're going to do reflecting you, you can't change everything in one full swoop that's no.
1: that's too hard <laughs> Well, it's nice that you can use that as a model because some some teachers get frustrated because they see how, you know, maybe they might visit your, you know, Mike's class and you working together and go, wow, mm-hmm. I, I want to do that <laughs> and think they yeah. can turn around and do it right away, right? But yeah. it takes time and the kids are different too. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think there's a misconception. The personalized learning is letting the kids
2: just have complete freedom. And that's not that's mm-hmm. not it at all. It's really working on... Making sure that all students have access to every, to whatever it is that they need and that you're all working towards the same endpoint, but how we get there is different. So it's, it's not the kid completely driving a ship, so to speak. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, we're giving them boundaries and we're saying, look, we are going to talk about velocity right now. Now, how you're going to get your learn or how you are going to learn the material or how you're going to practice the material and how you're going to demonstrate what you've learned. That's where there's a lot of voice and choice in our
1: classroom. Oh, I love that because it's uh, kind of it's what I've been preaching, I guess. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I, you know, when I've, Seen some of the strategies that Mike shared with me and you have uh-huh. shared. Um, what I like is how you've adapted it for, you know, the children are different. They're different. Yeah. So, and, yep. and, and you'll look at um, a way of getting to know the kids you've you've used a whole range of learner profiles just to mm-hmm. f- kind of figure out who the kids are and how they learn best. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And we have such a wide range of students in our classroom. Um, you know, currently a, a presentation that Mike and I have been doing at a variety of conferences, there, there's a slide in there that talks about who's in our classroom. And, and we sort of have a little description of, well, what does the learner profile say? What what do the teachers say in the copy room or in the, in the staff room? <laughs> and then mm-hmm. what does the paperwork say? You know? And so we have students that are identified as having a learning disability. We have students identified as having autism or an intellectual disability. We have the squirrely kids. We have the ones that can't, you know, want to learn everything hands-on and don't want to read. And it, we truly have everybody in our classroom. And Finding ways to reach all of those students is a challenge, but I think that as a special ed teacher, my role, my main role going into any classroom or even when I work with other teachers is those regular ed teachers need to understand the purpose of why that student's in the classroom. Ah. Because not everybody has an academic purpose.
1: And so, if the, oh, so how... That one I want to touch on when you get... Yep. We'll come back to it if you're going to go in uh-huh. a direction, but that idea of purpose, I don't know if the kids understand. I don't even know if the teachers understand that.
2: Well, I think that... so. You know, I have a student with an intellectual disability sitting in physics that student does not need to know the trigonometry behind light refraction. You know that's mm. just, that is not a skill that's critical <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, i don't know that anybody could convince me otherwise uh, they their purpose for being in a physics classroom is not going to be understanding the math behind velocity or momentum or do you know those those math related mm-hmm. tasks mm-hmm. but their purpose might be can you follow directions in the lab? Can you work within a team? Can you communicate? Can you relay like what is happening in you know, can you sequence the, the events and, and explain to me about uh, a lab that we did? You know, our class is very hands on for a reason, uh, because we do have all these needs. Mm-hmm. And it, it also might be, can you be in a situ, in an academic environment for more than a couple minutes before you need to take a break? You know, working on those self-regulation skills mm-hmm. that you need to be able to, to attend to a task for more than a couple minutes, so it's really teachers understand the purpose and why a student is there, and then that's where I come in and help the teacher understand that. But then, what does the class look like for them? How do we grade? That's always a question, and you know, a lot of times for um, for students with intellectual disabilities or real significant autism, it's a pass fail. And they don't need to have the, the, their purpose is different than academic. And it's just really making sure that people understand
1: that. I think I want to go into this a little more because, Mm -hmm. um, you know, like in one of Mike's classes, how many kids that have these, uh, academic disabilities or learning disabilities? what is the, you know, the range? Um, well, Uh,
2: it, it largely depends on the year and the, time of the day you know like what else is happening in the school in terms of electives so right now we have two sections of physics and one section has um we're probably just under we're probably right around 20 percent of students having identified disabilities now that doesn't this year just because of uh the, the composition of students—we don't have anybody with a real significant intellectual disability. We did mm-hmm. last year; we had about four in there, but it's—it's it's just who's at our school right now. Yeah, <laughs> you know? oh, it it, range, it changes. <laughs> yes,
1: it but, sure does. So, I mean, I think every child—I don't care—everybody has something, mm-hmm. and and may have difficulty understanding concepts for other types of reasons. So, how much time do you spend with? you know, the, you know, these kids to figure out who they are and their limitations or other things that are happening?
2: Well, we're real fortunate at Brookfield Central that we loop with our students. So case managers really get to know their students over the course of four years uh, Mm. because we don't switch case managers. Um, very often it's so you you know a student comes in as a freshman and I keep them on my caseload for four years so when they come to me as sophomores or juniors or even seniors in physics I'm able to go to the case manager and say what do I need to know (laughs) or you know I've also had these kids already in biology so I have some knowledge of them already. Mm. Um, I used to co-teach algebra, so I I would also have these kids as freshmen in in algebra. So you do get it. there's a real advantage to having them first as freshmen and getting to know them and then seeing them again a few years later. Because one, it's exciting to see that whatever type of growth you know has occurred. There's always some growth. <laughs> Uh, But then I'm not starting at step one in physics with them. Mm -hmm. And I have a a good idea of what I'm getting into or or what their needs are. We do sit down with our, you know, we do uh, student-led IEPs in our building. And part of that is students really being able to explain, or the prep work that we do is having them explain who they are as a learner and really diving into what are their their hopes and their dreams and what are their end goals but then what do they need to be successful and making sure they can articulate that and mike and i actually do that with all of our students at near the beginning of the school year and we revisit it a couple times and have students reflect on what have they done they do a reflection at the end of every single unit and reflect on how did they practice the material was it helpful how, what what choices did they make in their assessment options and was that a good choice or what would they do differently next time and you know i think those are pretty adult conversations because they could be have they could be working real hard on projects in other classes and opt to just take a test in our class rather than doing a project. You know, and that's also being able, I mean, that's a life skill, being able to balance and, and just make good choices for what you're doing at that point in the month or in your life and just making sure that you can get everything done. So, you know, kids make choices for a variety of reasons. And we try to help them make choices based on what they're good at, but you also might have a student who says, you know, I really need to get over this test taking hump that I'm on, that I want to get better at taking tests. I need to work on my anxiety. The only way I'm going to get better is if I do it. So, you know, it's a hard, that's a tough one for me to swallow as a teacher. It's like, if you're not good at it. Why are you making that choice? But
1: Mm -hmm.
2: sometimes that's what the kid needs and that's their,
1: (laughs) but that's actually cool. that if they want to challenge themselves, themselves yep. around something that's really tough mm-hmm. do, are you able to give them more time or uh, oh yeah and if mm-hmm. you know think something doesn't go well on one section they
2: it, we're standards based so then we just work on that standard and if there was really we're very we have a lot of gray areas you know we we make exceptions for students and we'll find mm-hmm. ways for kids to be successful and if it has to be Okay, you're taking the test, and this one part didn't go well. Well, let's talk about it. Let's. Is there something else you can do to prove that proficiency? It's we're we're pretty accommodating.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember I've done a little work with Mike, so I've seen mm-hmm. some of the uh, results, and also you've shared some, which have been really amazing. Uh, the The thing that I I like is that you give them opportunities to have choice and avoids in their learning, but you also give them opportunities to redo. And yep. and a lot of teachers don't have time for that. And I no. always think it's so important to say, so you didn't get it this time. What if you take a chance and uh, take a risk and try st- some other ways to demonstrate what you learned, right? Mm-hmm.
2: Well, and I think it, it goes back to, everybody learns at their own pace. And you might just need a little bit more time or you need a little bit more practice or you need... A different activity to really drive whatever concept it is that we're, we're studying at home. You, you just, not everybody arrives at the end point at the same time and making sure students do have that option to revise and keep on plugging away at something until they're satisfied with how far
1: they, they took it. See, I love physics because I actually, <laughs> t- I, this is, I'm just giving you a little background here. I was a chapter leader for the young astronauts and they did a physics
2: program. <gasps> I was a young astronaut. Did you do that too? i- w- yes,
1: in elementary school, yeah, I did it in elementary. I was working for the gifted program and did that, and it was all around physics and some of the prog- some of the ideas of perspective and you know just being able to see things in a different way really changed me mm-hmm. did what did you think of it?
2: Well, I, I was, uh, a, a fourth grader. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> so, uh, what I remember, well, maybe I was a third grade. Nope. I think it was just fourth and fifth grade that you could be in young astronauts. And, um, just to give you a little time that, so the Challenger, uh, well that the Challenger disaster was when I was in third grade. Mm-hmm. So that was all very fresh. Yeah. Um, and yeah. that that first year that I was in young astronauts, it was all about um, the well, this is how I remember it. now granted, this was a long time ago, but it they did a competition where we had to design a space station. I did that.
1: (laughs) Do you remember that? Well, my school won. Uh, No, I was the leader for my. I taught it. I taught it. Yeah. yeah, So we we had
2: to design the space station, and we broke up into teams and different Mm. crews. We called it, and I think that was really my first project-based learning experience. If I want to be honest about it, and we connected. I remember I was they the the leaders for some reason made me a crew chief as a fourth grader for (laughs) I was in charge like the recreation leisure so I had to like figure out what are people going to do on our space station like for fun what do you have them do and well I connected with uh, our adult mentors connected us with um people who worked on submarines oh (laughs) (laughs) so like you know confined places you're under you know you're in one spot for a long time so that was really my first big project-based learning experience that I remember and that made a a big impact I think on me too
1: because I learned a lot I learned (laughs) both I think that for me that was my first of many I did I taught PBL for a long mm-hmm. time, but that was the one that, where I learned some strategies to do that and then took it into the classroom. It was really fun. So,
2: so that was me as a student. Yeah.
1: I know. Actually, I hate to tell you, I'm probably, that's when I taught it was 86. Yeah. So I could have been your teacher. And so anyway, I've been around a long time. So what can I say? But um, Andy, and my mm-hmm. son is Andrew. <laughs> I just want to let you know I love the name Andy. Um you know I've been writing about personalized learning, and i uh there's some of the things that you and Mike have been doing and sharing with me, and he's been doing things on the portfolios mm-hmm. and I mean is there anything you want to add that we didn't talk about
2: well, you know one thing I would like to add about those portfolios that i I know Mike doesn't touch on because it's not um it's not really his area but it is an opportunity for me as a special ed teacher to do some work with students on writing and we're able to hit some of those IEP goals through the portfolio and I think one of the biggest challenges for special ed teachers is finding time to do uh, specially designed instructional minute, or to fulfill those specially designed instruction minutes that are outlined in the IEP, especially if you don't have a pullout program at your school or you don't have pullout services, how do you do that? And when we do those portfolios and there's portfolio days, I can, you know, students write and I can give them feedback and we can and we can work on writing skills. They, I, I do have one student who. Uh, has some speech goals. And so we do some audio recordings for his portfolio and we're able to meet some speech goals that way. So student, you know, portfolio, a portfolio is not just a way to document what you've learned. It, it can be so much more than that. And there's, it's, it, it's value and how it can contribute to a student's education. Who can pull, you know, pull information about a student. It, it's such a valuable, documents and really opportunity for a student to create. And I have had students present their physics portfolios at an IEP meeting, and while that's very narrow because it's one class, um, it's always my hope that, you know, another teacher might jump on board and have them just start adding tabs related to their class in, the, in that student portfolio. Um, Maybe someday.
1: <laughs> but oh, I the, hope so.
2: But there's, you know, Mike and I do a whole passion page, and it mm-hmm. really dives into what the students are interested in. It's a way for us to get to know them. Uh, what are they interested in? What are their career goals? What do they want to do after high school? What's What gets them excited um, mm-hmm. to get up in the morning? It. So those are also things that I have students present out at IEP meetings sometimes because it helps, I think, bring everybody in the room to remember who are we there for.
1: I love that when you do student-led mm-hmm. IEPs. I mean, I feel, this is for me, I really think that, you know, all conferences, parent conferences should be student-led also. Absolutely. I, I feel, and then the idea of having portfolios, because I've seen the passion projects. Micah mm-hmm. shared those with me, and I think it's so important to... um We need to talk about what is it that excites you and that purpose. You mentioned purpose in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And what is your purpose for learning? If you're not motivated, you're not going to learn. You're just not going to care, right? Mm -hmm.
2: So it's, you know, when we do... When we prepare our students, when I, and now when I say we, it's not just me doing the student-led IEPs. This is something that my whole department is real um, has gotten on board with and we're becoming more and more passionate about. Uh, it's making sure that those students have a voice in their meeting. And actually, just this morning, I was working with a student who I don't case manage, but I was just kind of talking to him about his IEP meeting that's upcoming. And he said, whenever I go into those meetings, I feel like I'm forced to pick a side. I'm either mm. on my teacher's side or I have to pick my mom's side or I'm on this person's side. And that sort of broke my heart because yeah. like, oh. no, there should be no, there, there shouldn't be any sides. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> and, you know, just telling them like, well, I can guarantee you that, you know, your teachers are on your side <laughs> if, you, <laughs> if you want to look at sides. But I, I said, you know, this is, the meeting is about you and what makes you successful. How can we make you successful, and how can we capitalize on your strengths? How can we uh, figure out ways to or what helps you with your challenges and your weaknesses? you know what mm-hmm. it, it, it's it's all about bringing you up and how can we make you the best version of yourself? so it's uh, I,
0: I hope that.
2: he I hope he has a good experience at his meeting Because I felt like <laughs> I really had to do a whole pep talk for him, but you know that's really. Why I do those student led IEP meetings is I think it puts everybody in the room, sort of recenters everybody, and reminds us that there's a child at the center of it. And we're all there for the same purpose to, to help this child be successful. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, and at the high school level, we have such a short period of time and then we're done. I know. And you're sending these kids off, and you have to make sure that they're there, that they can advocate for themselves, that they have a good idea of who they are as a learner and who they are as a person. Because um, if they don't, success is going to be awfully difficult to achieve.
1: <laughs> oh, it's... but you're saying everything right and and also figuring out a way to work with the parents too, because everybody mm-hmm. wants to be on the side of their child and, and yeah it's just difficult sometimes because we you, you know just even getting when a child has some i don't want to say disabilities some difficulties challenges mm-hmm. it is can be difficult for anyone around them because they're not really sure what to say or do, right? Mm -hmm. But if we're like, you know, they say it takes a village, it really does. Mm -hmm.
2: Well, and Mm -hmm. I always, you know, I guess I always believe too, that if I have a family where I I do feel like there are sides, how did we get there? Mm
0: -hmm. And I
2: know that I wasn't part of however that family got there or what in the education system caused this, but... How can we, how can we all get on the same side and that's the side of the student? I, to be, to be very honest, I don't have a lot of conflicts with parents. I don't want to sound like that, yeah. that that's something that's commonplace, but it, it does happen and it's common in every school. There's, there are going to be some families that have had some horrible experiences and whether it was horrible experiences from their childhood or horrible experiences, you know, as they're advocating for their own child,
1: I, we have to, we have to make sure that everybody understands why we're there. Well, this is why. What you're doing is providing this um, a culture and a, a experience that teachers, other teachers, and students, and hopefully the parents, can learn from. And mm-hmm. I, I just learned. I learned a lot about you, oh. and this has been just wonderful. Just you are amazing, and you're doing everything I talked about. And when I talk about personalized learning. It's really fun because it is personal. <laughs> it's never the same anywhere. Nope. <laughs> and no matter what you can give people all the resources, templates or whatever. There aren't templates. They don't work in a no. personal life. <laughs> and so what you're showing is that it all takes about a caring person who really listens. Mhm. Yeah, you
2: got to get to know your students and you know and I think teachers need to get to really understand what's happening in other classrooms too. We can't work in mm-hmm. we can't close the door and not connect with each other because we we're all learning so much about students and if somebody's having a lot of success down the hall with a student I'm struggling with, I need to find out what's going on. And that's mm-hmm. why PLCs are so important as well.
1: Wow, you're pretty awesome, kid. <laughs> thank <laughs> you well, thank so you. much for being here. This has been just amazing. I I hope we do some more. We're gonna have to talk again, so we'll put some things together on the post and share out ideas. But this has been wonderful. Thank you, (laughs) Randy. Yep. This is Barbara Bray. Thank you for listening to the Rethinking Learning podcast and my conversation with Andalee Espinoza. Make sure you check out the blog post that goes with this podcast. And it's all about Andalee, and it's on my website that includes links, pictures, and much more about her story. When you subscribe to my website, which is at barbarabray.net, you receive announcements, updates, new podcasts and posts, and information about my new book, Define Your Why. It's launched in February 2020. And actually, Andalee even wrote a story for my book. So look for Define Your Why on Amazon and on my site for the book study resources and more. You see, your stories, feedback, and reviews have helped me define my why. It's all about the stories, and that's what inspired me to do my podcast and write my book. So enjoy, and please share your story.